Paul is nearing the end of his life, and he is writing to his dear friend Timothy, helping to direct his course and the course of his church in the middle of a culture and a context that is not helpful to those ends. A culture and a context that is void of Christ and void of the Gospel. So, Paul has much to say to Timothy. Today we're in chapter 3, verses 1-7, through as Paul is continuing his instruction on how men and women are to behave in God's church, in the household of God. Last week we looked at the end of chapter 2, and we saw that a practical outworking of Paul's theology was that women in the church were to be barred from a certain kind of public teaching as well as exercising authority over men in the church. And so now Paul flows into who is to fill that role of authoritative teaching and exercising authority in the church, and it's going to be elders. So let's pray. We'll get into this today. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day that you've made. We thank you for filling this day with your glory. God, give us eyes to see the beauty that you have brought around us today. Help us not to be blind and to miss what you have, uh, what you've made and created in this physical world, uh, what you have made and created in people, in your image, the mercy and grace that you have poured out on every life, the providence that you will bring our way today that will be helpful and good and beneficial to us. Help us not to be so distracted with our agenda, with our will and our schedules that we miss who you are and what you are doing in us, and through us, and around us. We pray now, even as we come to your word, that uh, there may be some here today that, that do not take this time as seriously as they should. And then we probably have people here today who have even been taught not to take this time as seriously as we should. When we come together as your family to worship you, on the first day of every week. So God, if there are those among us who have been guilty of not properly weighing what we're here to do today, God, we pray that the weight of what this is would sink hard and fast in the heart of these people. That we would recognize that we are here and now before a holy God, who is looking on, anticipating, and looking for worship and adoration from His people. And may we give You what You desire, God. And now through the preaching of Your Word, I pray that this preaching would be good and right and accurate and helpful for Your people. That we may love You more for our good, for Your glory. We pray this in the great name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. So as awkward as it may be, I need to start today's message by wrapping up last week's message. I can't believe I didn't get a single email this week. No, I got a lot of emails this week. but I can't Good emails. But I can't believe that I didn't get a single email asking, what about verse 15? Did anybody catch that? We, we read, you know, verses 8 through 15, but we stopped at verse 14 and nothing on verse 15. And verse 15 is a wild verse that at first glance could say a number of different things, including you are not a Christian woman until you have a child which would be pretty serious and would probably change what people were doing with their time. But that's not what it says. Verse 15, let me read this to you. Um, 
Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now let me get context to that. Verses 13 and 14 was looking back at creation. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Commentators for 2,000 years have been coming to that verse and literally just going like this. You could read 40 different commentaries and read 40 different explanations of what this verse said. I've heard there are over 100 different interpretations. So I'm going to give you three quickly because this isn't what we're talking about today, but just so that you're not you know, anxious, just wondering what, what we think about this verse here. I'm going to give you three possible explanations of what Paul is talking about, probably the best ones, but I don't know which one of these is right. And if you're interested in the other 98, you can go home and Google First Timothy. No, don't do that. Don't, don't ever Google Scripture. Three explanations. Here's the first possibility. It could mean that she will be saved through the childbirth. So one possible way of actually interpreting the Greek text here is, is not talking about all women, but she will be saved through childbearing if, and, and instead of they, if she continues in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So this explanation for the verse says that the she that it is talking about is not women in general, but it's talking specifically about Eve. Eve will be saved through the childbirth, the birth of her, her seed and her son and her son, 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 son. And in that line is going to come eventually. Genesis 3.15 already was pointing forward to, right? There will be enmity between the seed of woman, right? And the enemy, Satan. But the seed of woman is going to crush Satan. And that's talking about Jesus is the great seed of the woman. So Eve will experience salvation, the forgiveness of sins, through her seed, which will be Jesus. That's one interpretation. However, that is an ambiguous way, to say the least, for Paul to to point out God's saving grace. But it is a good possibility. Number two, it could mean this. Simply that women will be sanctified through bearing children. In other words, this isn't a a salvation that is from condemnation to salvation, from hell to heaven. This is talking about sanctification. And a part of a woman's sanctification, the way she will be sanctified, is through fulfilling her God-called role, which for many women involves bearing children. And so bearing children will be a part of your sanctification, women, before God. Third possibility is that when it talks about salvation and being saved, it means that women will be kept safe from wrongly seizing men's roles by embracing women's role. So the salvation that he may be talking about isn't a from darkness to light, but Paul may be saying that a woman will be saved from wrongly seizing the role of a man by embracing the role that God has given her. Namely, to love her husband and to love children or to at the very least desire to have a husband and love him and to have children and love them. And if a woman embraces that God-given call, she will be saved from trying to usurp a man's authority as was just talked about and was happening in the church in Ephesus. I vote three. You may like number two. You may like number one. Or you may like one of the other 98. But this is not a closed hand text here at Veritas. But I wanted to give you something. I wanted to throw you a bone on 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. But now, let's move on to reiterate, okay, Paul now is moving on to explain to us 
who is to fulfill this role that he has talked about of authoritative teaching in the church and exercising authority in the church. He's made it clear based on the creation order and based on the role reversal that took place in the fall and did not go well, he's made it clear that we are not to reverse those roles again and to put women in that position of exercising authority in God's church. So, who is to exercise that authority over Christ's church? And this is the question that he is answering now as he moves on to chapter 3. So let's get started with verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So let's talk briefly about the leadership structure that the New Testament brings to light in regards to the church. First of all, you have the church. Okay. The Greek word ekklesia. And the church is not a, an event. The church is not a venue. Strictly speaking, the church is a people. The church is a people for and from all time who are loving and trusting God. More specifically, the church are those people for and from all time who have been elected by God the Father, reconciled by Jesus Christ, and drawn into relationship with God by the Holy Spirit. So you see, actually, the, the Trinity at work in building and forming the church. In the Trinity, in the Godhead, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the church are those people for and from all time. So it is is a global community of people. So there's a community of people right now that exists all over the globe. As well, it is a timeless community. It's not some new thing that has just shown up in the last 100 years. But it is a global and timeless community of people who are loving and trusting God. But here's the question. Why are these people, why are these Christians loving and trusting God? Why is the church the church? And the answer is found in the work of God. First, in the work of God the Father to, before time as we know it, began to elect unconditionally, not based on anything you have done or that I have done, but to elect unconditionally a people for Himself. And then in time, those people were reconciled to God. A relationship with God was made possible through atonement. Through Jesus Christ coming and dying in the place of those whom God the Father had elected to be His family. So now you have a people, individuals in the church, who have been elected by God the Father from before the beginning of time as we know it, who have been atoned for, who have been purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ. But now the problem is that these people don't know that. They don't know who God is and what He has done. We are all blind. We, all, we are all hard-hearted. We are all resistant to God. We hear truth and we reject it. And we make up our own God. So now is the work of the Holy Spirit. In time, in your life, if you're a Christian at some point, the Holy Spirit then came and drew you to God and opened your eyes to what God had done in your life and what God had secured for you through Jesus Christ. So the church are those people who love and trust God, but make no mistake, it is God who has loved you first. The church are those people who have been loved into loving and trusting God. It's been His work to to come and to get us and to, to take us. So, the church is a global and timeless community, and so therefore, Veritas, all Veritas is, is a local expression 
of that global and timeless community. We are not the church here. We are a church here. We are a slice of the church. We are a local expression of a community of people who have been loved into loving God that exists globally and timelessly. And so we've got to get those definitions out of the way before we even begin to talk about leadership in the church. A couple more points about the church and and who we are and, and what we are to be as a people. This says it well. This comes from the the spirit of the Reformation Study Bible. I believe R.C. Sproul wrote this. It's a description of the church, specifically looking at Ephesians. Ephesians describes the church as, so church, this is a good description of who we are now. God's new humanity. A colony in which the Lord of history has established a foretaste of the renewed unity and dignity of the human race. A community in which God's power to reconcile men and women to Himself is experienced and then shared in transformed relationships. It is an outpost in a dark world offering light to the lost. The church is a bride being prepared for the approach of her lover and husband. So there is a purpose and a mission to who we are as a church. But we are also, as a church, this is the other word I want to bring to bear on this, we are also a family. The church is a family. The church is a family where God is our Father. He's our Heavenly Father. This is why when the Bible speaks of us being brought into the church, it talks about us being brought into the family of God or the household of God. And the word used for that bringing in that God uses is adopted. And then it calls us, as the church, it calls us His sons and daughters. Men, you are a son of God. Women, you are a daughter of God. Your heavenly Father. Which makes us all then brothers and sisters. So this is a a tight relationship. You see why here at Veritas, we encourage us to be in community with one another. We must be in community with one another where we are knowing and being known because we are a family. John Calvin said, every Christian should have his church enclosed in his heart. Every Christian should be affected, affected by the maladies of others in his or her church. Should be sorrowful when others are suffering. Should bewail others' sins. The kind of family we are to be when we say that we are Christ's church. So let's talk about authority now. With this understanding that that this is the church and and this is who we are as God's family, as God's people. First of all, we know that God is in authority. Now, God is not just in authority over the church. God is in authority over the world. God is in authority over all of creation. God is king and he's king over all people. God has created everyone. God is sustaining everyone. God is directing everyone. And therefore, everyone on the planet right now is under the authority of God. Now, here's what sets the church aside. The church is under God's authority willingly and joyfully. So everyone is under God's authority. But many are under God's authority unwillingly. In other words, well, I I hear and I know and I believe that there is a God and we are subject to Him and I'm under that authority, but I do not like it and I push against it and I don't want to have anything to do with His rule. But others, I would say, most of the world are actually under God's authority as King right now, but they're under His authority ignorantly. Most today don't know and don't believe that God really is king and in authority over them. But as a church, you know. 
You are under God's authority knowingly. You are under God's authority willingly. As Christians, we we desire to be people who are under authority. We desire to be people who are told what to do by God through His Word. We don't buck against authority. We want God's authority in our life and we want to know what He wants us to do. That is not in our nature. My children don't run up to me in the morning and say, Dad, what do you want me to do today? Father, I long for your instruction this morn. My children don't talk that way. Right? But, but I will bring instruction. Right? And they will experience authority. And hopefully they submit to that. But we don't, by nature, hunger and thirst to submit to authority. But the reality is that we are all under authority. Christians are not only under that authority, though, willingly. It's joyfully. Joyfully, we are under God's authority. We want to be there. Now, more specifically now, when it comes to the church, here's what the New Testament lays out. The authority in the church is not the pastor. The authority in the church is not the members. The authority in the church is not the the directors or the leaders or the deacons. The authority in the church is Jesus. Jesus Christ is the authority in the church, which means that Jesus Christ is the authority in every little church, every local expression of God's global and timeless church. Jesus is really the authority in that church. Under Jesus are elders, which we're going to look at today. Next week, we'll look at under the elders are deacons. Under deacons, you have Members, And if you're a Christian, you fit into one of those categories or you should fit into one of those categories. You should be a member of a church committed to Christ and his people, not just Christ. God knows no children who are committed to him, but not committed to his other children. So you are a member, or you are a deacon, or you are an elder. And all of us fall under the authority of Jesus Christ. If you turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, you can actually see Paul point out all of these roles in this very first verse. Paul and Timothy okay, are writing. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And who is he writing to in Philippi? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. So we're writing to all the saints, the hagios, those who've been set apart, the members, if you will, of this church in Philippi, along with the overseers or the elders or the pastors and the deacons. And you see this expressed elsewhere in the New Testament. So that is the leadership structure in Christ's church. It is Jesus, elders, deacons, members. Now we'll see more of this as we go on, but we need to be very careful that we don't make up titles and positions of authority in the church that God doesn't mention in the Bible. We don't want to have other positions of leadership that can't, when we nail them down, fall into one of these biblical categories. So first, let's look at Jesus. Before we even look at the elders, we've got to understand what the role of Jesus is. 1 Peter 5.4 says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Chief shepherd. Another translation is senior pastor. Jesus is called our chief shepherd. He is our senior pastor. He is the one who pastors over His church. 1 Peter 2.25 For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's Jesus. Who is He? The shepherd and overseer of your souls. You're going to see soon that elders are called shepherds and overseers of your souls. But Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Who is your pastor? Jesus is your pastor. He is your chief pastor. 
You are accountable to Him foundationally. Colossians 1.18 And He, that's Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything He might have the supremacy. Matthew 16, 18, you remember when Jesus is talking to Peter and his disciples and he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus says that. I will build my church. Whose church is it? Who does the church belong to? Jesus. Who's building the church? Jesus. Who's overseeing the church? Jesus. Who's pastoring the church? Jesus. Who's ruling over the church? Jesus. Who's the head of the church? Jesus. Who's in supremacy over the church? Jesus. Just quoting scripture. Who shuts down churches? Jesus. Revelation chapter 2 verse 5. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you. This is Jesus talking. This is not the kind of visit you want from Jesus. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Writing to the church in Ephesus. Jesus rules. You've seen churches shut down. You've seen churches shut down for a lot of different reasons. You know what the foundational reason that that church shut down because Jesus decided to shut it down. You see a church that is, is building, actually building. I'm not talking about a building, okay, but health and, and depth and growing in knowledge and depth of insight of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and being conformed into His image and growing in community as brothers and sisters, that kind of growth. You see a church growing like that. You may think of a lot of reasons why that church is growing. Well, it's because of this program or this campaign or because of this ministry or because of this preaching or because of these leaders. No, foundationally, the reason that church is growing is because Jesus is building His church. Okay, this is one of those points that we can just so easily glaze over and we say, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. Jesus is in charge. Okay, we'll have our next board meeting. We'll have an empty chair. I get it. You know, Jesus is always there and he's always ruling with us and we've got to be mindful of that. But we need to not just, no, really. No, really. At Veritas, your elders, myself and and Matt Phelan and Curtis Banchero, we do not see ourselves as, as leaders who are in charge of this church. We see ourselves as under-shepherds who are under the One who is in charge of this church. It does not belong to us. This is not our church. Funny story with that. One time at another church where I was serving and my nephew was there in the children's class and I got word from the teacher afterwards that my nephew had been very disobedient during class. And so the teacher came and found me and, and told me what had happened and then kind of had this funny story about what he said when she challenged him. And she challenged him. This is while I was preaching and he's over in the class and says, you know, you need to do this. You're not obeying. You need to sit down. And, and if you don't do this, I'm going to have to go get your parents and this and this and this and this. And he looked her in the eye and says, I don't have to sit down. My uncle owns this place. <laughs> not true. This church, this is not Eric's church. This is not Curtis's church. This is not, this is not Matt's church. This is not all of your church. I'm not going to do votes to vote on what we do as a church. We're not a democracy. Sorry. We're not. We're under Christ and His rule. And so quite seriously, He is the senior pastor. There's a reason that I don't even bear that title. He is the senior pastor of this church. Actively. Active. I mean, he's here right now. Jesus, he's saving people, right? What is the work he's doing? I will leave and then I'm going to send my spirit. Okay, what is Jesus? He is saving people right now. He is guiding people. He's confronting people. He's convicting people. He is leading people. He is exposing sin. He is responding to prayer. He is changing hearts. He literally is pastoring this church today. Jesus is. 
We cannot overlook that. Jesus is the senior pastor of this church. And yet, and yet, here's where we get to elders now. And yet, God, throughout history, God uses human hands. So it's not just that. God then uses and appoints throughout history, all the way back to creation. God uses human hands. God uses sub-leadership and appoints others to lead. He delegates people to exercise authority over His people. You see it in the patriarchs of the Old Testament. You see it in the priests of the Old Testament. You see it in pastors in the New Testament where God is using human hands. Even for you as a Christian. God doesn't need you for evangelism. He doesn't need you to get people into His kingdom. And yet, 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are His ambassadors. As though, what does it say? God, we're making His appeal through us. God uses us. But here's where we need to be careful. Because God, this is why we take so much time establishing who Jesus is and what He's done. Just because God uses us, make this clear, that does not mean God needs us. Does not mean God needs us. I can fall off the stage, crack my head, die, and it's going to be okay. God doesn't need me. God doesn't need you. He may choose to use us for His greater glory, but He does not need us. And we get into a dangerous spot and get on a slippery slope when we start thinking that oh the reason that i have this leadership and the reason that i have this authority and the reason that i have this responsibility and the reason i have a title now is because god needs me and if i don't show up this thing just isn't going to happen yeah jesus is building his church but he's building it through me no he's using you 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 are a tool. You are a tool. We are all tools in God's hands. You are the clay, right? He is the potter. We've got to get over ourselves. And remember, Acts 17, 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Okay, the big sign on heaven says no help wanted. No help needed. God is not hiring. He's good. He has it covered. But for whatever reason, sometimes I don't even understand For whatever reason, God appoints leaders and and puts people in positions of authority. And sometimes it'd be like just me and Kristen leaving and just putting our eight-year-old in charge. And sometimes why church looks like that. And things look like that. But God does. He uses human hands. Now, right here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we see that the way God uses human hands in organizing, managing, leading, teaching His church is to appoint elders. And this is what Timothy is talk, Paul is talking about. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So, elders are God's appointed leaders in the church who are in submission to Jesus who bear the primary responsibility of overseeing the souls of those whom God has entrusted to them. And so the metaphor over and over again is a shepherd and sheep. A shepherd and a flock. And so elders are those under-shepherds. They are those who, according to Acts chapter 20, verse 28, whom the Holy Spirit has made overseers. An elder is ultimately appointed by God. Appointed by God to oversee souls. This is the role of an elder. And let's get this out of the way so that we're clear. The word for elder in your New Testament is the same word as pastor. It's the same word as bishop. 
Same word as overseer. Same word as shepherd. So elder, pastor, bishop, overseer, shepherd. These are all used synonymously. Acts chapter 20. 1 Peter chapter 5. These words are all used synonymously to describe the same role. So some of you have been to a church where they had a pastor and then they had elders. No, a pastor is an elder and an elder is a pastor. Here, usually, we go by pastor. You don't have to call me Elder Elder Eric. Sometimes kids run around and it's pretty cute. They call me Pastor Eric. I like that. I like that. I love it when I hear a kid call me Pastor Eric. Elder Eric little Mormonish. Pastor Eric, that, that works. So that's the word that we use here at Veritas primarily is pastor. But when we say pastor, we mean elder, overseer, shepherd, bishop, whatever other word that you see in the New Testament. It's all referring to the same office as those who are given by Jesus the primary responsibility to care for the souls of those He has entrusted to them. And that is what elders are to do, more specifically now. An elder as an under-shepherd follows the example of Jesus, the chief shepherd. Right? He is the pastor. So elders are just following the example of Jesus. So we look and see, okay, what did Jesus do? What, What is his role? Okay, and then how do we reflect that under his authority? We see there are three basic offices that Jesus fulfilled. He is the ultimate prophet. He is the ultimate priest. He is the ultimate king. An elder being an under-shepherd under the authority of Jesus must be a little prophet, a little priest, a little king. In the same way that Jesus was a prophet, He came and He taught truth. He declared truth. He promoted, defended sound doctrine. So an elder... In the church, is responsible to promote and to defend sound doctrine. To teach. To preach. It's why it is the only skill that Paul lists. The only skill that an elder is required to have is he must be able to teach. A deacon doesn't have to preach or teach. Members don't have to teach. But an elder must be able to teach. Why? Because he's an under-shepherd. Sub-leadership under Jesus, who was our great prophet. And so a pastor needs to be able to teach God's people. We see also that Jesus is king. That Jesus is in authority. That Jesus rules. So too, as 1 Timothy 5.17 talks about, elders need to be able to rule. They need to be able to take God's word and to look at the flock, and to make decisions for the church that are good and helpful and beneficial and lead the church in a direction that honors and glorifies God, functioning as a lowercase king, if you will. As well, we see that Jesus was priest, the great shepherd and overseer of our souls. Jesus cares for us with a meekness and gentleness. So too, a pastor must be able to care for the people in his church. So he must be a reflection of Christ as a prophet. He must be a reflection of Christ as a king. He must be a reflection of Christ as a priest. This is the role of an elder. As well, as as Paul says here, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task task. So to be a pastor in a church, it is meant to be work. There's jokes that go around about how little pastors work. I've heard that before. So you only work on Sunday, right? What do you do the rest of the week? (laughs) Golf and, you know, television and... No, being a pastor is, according to Scripture, it is a task. It is supposed to be hard and painful at times and arduous work. What kind of work? The work of teaching. The work of studying God's Word. The work of praying for God's people. 
Remember in Acts chapter 6, when they first started, it looks like appointing deacons. It was to free the pastors up. What was it to free them up to do? The pastor said, take care of this, okay? Meet these physical needs so that we can devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. For a pastor, prayer isn't just at the dinner table. Prayer isn't just kneeling down at the bedside. Prayer is setting aside, setting aside blocks of time to just, for me, I have a journal with just your names. And I go through and I pray and I pray and I pray. Sometimes you'll get an email from me or a text from me if we have that kind of a relationship and I'll just be checking in on something. Most likely, when you get that from me, I'm checking in as I was praying through you as a member of the church. And I came to you and I'm praying for you, so I want to know what's going on so I've got more fuel for my prayer. This is the work of a pastor. Now, you have pastors who are lay pastors who have full-time jobs like Curtis and Matt who are working full-time, 40-plus hours a week, and they're being a pastor. And you will have pastors who are getting paid to do the work of a pastor. But understand this, that when a pastor is getting paid, this is the kind of work that he should be doing. So when you pay a pastor, when a church pays a pastor, they are paying him to have more time, first and foremost, to study God's Word, and to read God's Word, and to pray for God's people. To study so that he can teach. To study so that he can preach. To study so that he can counsel. So that he can lead you. So that he can guide you. And to pray for you. So that his heart will be knit to you. And he can know how to teach you. And how to counsel you. And how to pray. This is primarily the privilege that you free up a pastor to do. Now I say all that because there are so many in this day and age. There are so many different understandings and definitions about what a pastor does. And how he spends his time. So let's just look and see that that is biblically, this is what God calls pastors to do. Primarily. Not primarily to be CEOs. Not primarily to be managers of people. Not primarily to be motivational speakers. But primarily to be men of prayer and ministry of the word. That is what a pastor does. Now, some of those other things like organization may help to facilitate that. But this is the primary role of a pastor. So is that some of us need to adjust our thinking? Is that our understanding of what it means to be a pastor? Or do we have other concepts? Incidentally, you see, this is why church membership is so important. It's why it's so important that you publicly and voluntarily and willingly, you commit to a local expression of God's church and you submit to authority elders in a local church. It is imperative that you do that. Otherwise, who is your pastor? Because you're supposed to have a pastor that is under your pastor, Jesus. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders, submit to their authority. So who are your leaders? People who are church hopping and all over the place and at this church on Sunday morning, this church on Saturday night, this church on Wednesday, who are you accountable to and who are you committed to? And it goes the other way as a pastor, who is my flock? Is it everybody who comes through these doors? Am I chasing everybody? And you know. If you are a visitor or you are a guest, we may have some interaction, but it's going to be limited. If you are a member, okay, there is there is more to it. When I'm praying through my list of people, I am praying primarily for our members because they are the ones who, according to Hebrews 13, 17, every elder one day will give an account for his flock. Who is the flock? Who is your pastor? Who teaches you? Who confronts you? Who disciplines you if necessary? Without church membership, these aren't even realities in a Christian's life. So this is the role and this is the relationship. And Paul said, if anyone aspires to this office, he desires a noble task. So let's talk to men now specifically. Men, 
desire this. Twice in one sentence, Paul uses strong words. Aspire and desire. There is nothing wrong with, in fact, it is a good thing for a Christian man to desire leadership. It's not true that leadership is the opposite of humility. It's not true that if somebody is truly humble and has a servant's attitude that they they will not aspire for leadership because actually the role of leadership in the church is a role where you are given authority to serve not to lord it over people but you're given authority to serve others man you should desire leadership desire leadership not necessarily do leadership because we can go too far the other way Some men in the church, you need to be encouraged. You need to desire leadership. You need to step up. And you need to move forward. In the the context you are in, you need to start being more vocal. And you need to lead. And you need to take initiative. And you need to feel some sort of sense of responsibility. You need to start praying for these people. And asking them about their day. And asking them about their life. And getting to know them so that you can pray for them. And minister to them. And encourage them. And some of you are, it's not humility, but it comes across like humility. No, 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 I can't do that. No, I shouldn't do that. And really, there may be some fear involved there. But you need to, you should desire to be a leader. And then other guys got to slow down. Then there are those who just want to do leadership. No, desire leadership and then submit to a process. Submit to God and submit to Jesus and submit to sub-leadership and figure out what that looks like and let others come around you and counsel you and encourage you and get you there if that's where you are called to go. But at the very least, men, we should desire this kind of leadership. And this is where it starts now, what Paul gets into. Desire leadership. Desire to be an elder. Desire to be a leader in Christ church. But here is what that means. It doesn't mean desire to get paid, desire to have authority, desire to rule over people, desire to make decisions. Here is what the desire to be a leader boils down to. Desire holiness. Desire godly character. Men, this is what you should desire. It's curious what Paul launches into now. If you desire to be an overseer, you desire a noble task. And then you'd think maybe he's going to go into the job description. And instead he goes into job qualifications. He doesn't talk at all in this text about what an elder does. He talks about what an elder must be and who he is. And a leader is to be this man. And man, when you aspire to leadership, you aspire to holiness. You despise, you, you, you aspire to be a man of this kind of character. You should desire men to be a man who is qualified to lead. Paul describes this. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. For time's sake, let's look at a few of these quickly. We can look at the rest next Sunday. All men should desire this kind of life. All men should desire to have this kind of character. All men should desire to be holy. Robert Murray McShane, a pastor who only lived a 
think be 29 years old. He said this. He said, my congregation's greatest need is my personal holiness. Remember, Hebrews 13, 7 encourages Christians to imitate their leaders. And if Christians are going to imitate their leaders, then their leaders must be godly men. They must be men who are devoted to holiness. Hebrews 13, 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. First, must be the husband of one wife. An elder must be the husband of one wife. There's another verse that's had a lot of controversy over the years. It certainly means that a man can't have more than one wife. But it means much more than that. And if we look at the original Greek text, it's interesting the order of these words. What it literally says is, if a man is going to be an elder, he must be a one-woman man. His present life, he must be a one-woman man. When it talks about widows who are to be put on the list who will be cared for in the church in chapter 5, it says that any woman, in order to be qualified to be on that list and cared for, she must be a one-man woman. So an elder must be a one-woman man. In other words, the man who is in this office of elder, who is going to be imitated by other men in the church, he must have eyes only for his wife. He must have a heart only for his wife. He must have thoughts only for his wife. As far as his world is concerned, the only woman is his wife. What he thinks is beautiful is his wife. What he thinks is the best and most helpful and most beautiful and most encouraging is his wife. And there is no other woman on the planet that makes that list. He is a one-woman man. Pretty simple, really. Try to make it more complicated than it is to allow for men to be elders who are not one-woman men. I've heard stories upon stories upon stories and have witnessed firsthand and have been on staff and been a part of situations that were so ugly in regards to this verse, where men were allowed to lead and allowed to be elders and allowed to be pastors, and they were not one-woman men. I know of men who decided that they liked some other girl more than they liked their wife. And that manifested itself in every way possible. I've seen it go an inch deep, and I've seen it go miles deep. Full-blown physical adultery. Full-blown sexual intercourse with someone that is not your wife. And I've seen it just be flirting. Both violation of being a one-woman man. And here's where it gets sick. When there's meetings and board meetings and elder meetings where they try to figure out what to do with the man who is no longer a one-woman man. Well, let's Google it, or let's read this book, or let's see how this church deals with it, or let's figure out how we're going to contain this. That meeting should be an extremely short meeting where you just read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, and you are done. Amen. Thank you very much, but you are done. You're going to be imitated. You're an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ. We don't care what you do, what you bring to the church, what skills you have, what abilities you have, 
How much our church has grown numerically since you've been here. We're not going to contain this. We're not going to put a lid on this. The church is going to know about this. You are not a qualified man. You cannot lead. And people need to know. Now that is not politically correct. That is, that is, that is, that is dangerous in our society with so much litigation. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons why not to go that path. But this is how serious, this is why Paul doesn't launch into, well, you know, can you manage people? And, and what, are, what are your outlines like? And what kind of an accountability structure are you going to put together? And what kind of programs do you have in mind? He doesn't give a rip about any of that. He says, this man, this elder, he must be above reproach. There's no rumors about this guy. Okay, there's no accusations floating out there about this guy. People look to this man. He's a godly man. And you say to your men, be like this man. You say to your sons, be like this man. You say to these daughters, I hope you marry someone like that man. If you can't do that, then he shouldn't be an elder. This is how serious it is that this is what a man is. And this is why men, we should desire that. Men, we should aspire to the office of overseer. To have that kind of character. To have that kind of holiness. How how painful to preach this as a pastor. This is so uncomfortable. I read this list and I fail in so many ways. But by God's grace, and every pastor has to be able to say this, or he's not a pastor. By God's grace, I'm a qualified man. I'm a sinful man. The church is a place for sinners, but it is a place for repentant sinners. An elder has to be above reproach. No monsters living in the closet. No secrets. No vices. Can't be there. And first and foremost, Paul says, he must be a one-woman man. He expounds on that a few verses later and says, he must manage his household well. An elder must manage his household well. In other words, a man cannot lead God's family unless he can lead his own family. A man cannot lead in Christ's church if he can't lead his own church. Man, if you have families, okay, right now your church is you if you're a single guy, but it might grow. If you have a wife, if you have children, men, that is your little church. Oh, God sees you. He sees you as shepherd and pastor over your little church. And you should be teaching them. You should be shepherding them. You should be setting an example for them. You should be overseeing them. You should be caring primarily for their souls. It's your primary responsibility. And you must, Paul says, you must manage that household well before you would ever be put in a position to manage the household of God. In other words, the home for any man, the home is the proving ground for Christian leadership. It's the proving ground. The first place to look is what does the home look like? What does the family look like? Men desire to be godly husbands. Desire to be godly fathers. Desire to lead your household well. In an exemplary way. Right, this is so disregarded that in our culture today, that there's actually a joke of how PKs turn out. Been in church long enough, you know it stands for pastor's kids. And the, the typical pastor kid is the, the kid whose dad is a pastor and the kid just goes in the opposite direction. Just goes sideways. 
doesn't want to have anything to do with God, doesn't want to have anything to do with the church. And in our culture, we call that a typical PK. That's the pastor's kid. Now, sometimes and sadly, there's reasons for that. And oftentimes, the reason that a son or daughter of a pastor goes that way is because their father did not manage his household well. And he did not pastor his children and his wife well. And the church took priority over his family. And kids grow up and hate Jesus and hate the church because that's who took their dad from them. Some of you have seen that over and over and over again or maybe even felt that. So Paul is trying to organize priorities here. So this is the authority, this is the, the, the prioritized list for every pastor, right? Jesus is number one. I'm a Christian. I am a son first. That is my primary relationship. And I love Jesus more than anyone else in my life, and I'm committed to Jesus before I'm committed to anyone else in my life. Number two is Kristen, my beautiful wife. She's number two. Only to Jesus. That's a good number two. Number three are my children. So I'm a Christian. I'm a husband. I'm a father. My priority is mom. And then it's our children. Peyton, and Brady, and Jackson, and Blaze, and Avery. And they are my responsibility. Next on the list is my church. So you all have to be okay with being that far down on the list. You're like number eight. <laughs> Jesus, Kristen, Peyton, Brady, Jackson, Blaze, Avery. I, mean, I think we want more kids. So, I mean, you might even get bumped down even more. But you need to be okay with that and, and be all right with that. I've had people tell me to my face, you know, the church needs to come before your family. That's me write my wife a letter that said you really should stop having children. Because your husband isn't going to have the time that he needs to lead us. We want to just wind that one up. (laughs) No, that's so backwards. So men, desire this. Desire to be a leader. Desire to have this character. Whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're young, whether you're old. This is the desire that you want to have. Your your primary desire. You've got all kinds of things you want. And the job you want, and the money you want, and the relationship you want, and the hobbies you want, and the, the materials you want, and the house you want. Whatever those desires are, let's bump this one up to the top. Be above reproach. Be holy. Forget about what you want to accomplish. Forget about success in a worldly term. And and think about being above reproach. You desire, you want to aspire to be a godly man. When you think about what your legacy is, what you will be remembered as in, in generations to come, you want to be remembered as being a godly man, a holy man, a one-woman man who managed his household, who was sober-minded, who was gentle, who was kind, who was hospitable. That is what you want your legacy to be. Not for your glory, but for God's glory. Matthew 5.16 Let your light shine before men that they may praise your Father in heaven. So the glory and praise would go to God. Why was He like this? Why was He like that? Why did He do this? Because He walked with Jesus. And now God gets all the glory. Desire men to be faithful men of character. This is what we want to accomplish. This is what success needs to be for us. Above anything else. Men, aspire to be godly men. My encouragement for you guys is is to consider your life right now. To consider your, your priorities. To consider what you're sacrificing. 
to consider how you're investing your, your time and your money and your energy. Men, is it your chief desire to be above reproach? To be godly? Or has something else snuck in and become your priority? Everything else, everything else compared to this, meaningless. Everything else fading away. Anything good, man, anything good in your life, if anything good comes out of your life, it will only flow from being a godly man who loves Jesus more than anything else in this world. By God's grace, may this become a community and a culture that breeds that in our men. Men who call one another to holiness and godliness and being above reproach in this world. This is what God desires. May it be what we desire. There's much more, and we'll, we'll look next week. I'm going to pray, and we'll have communion this morning. You're visiting with us. What we do is we empty into the center. And then if you go around the outside, back to your seat, we'll have people up here who want to serve you. And then we'll take the bread and the juice together as a family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the day that you've given us and and the word that you've given us to challenge specifically our our men today. And I pray that your word would, would, would break us and crack us. Lay us open, Father that we would see our failure, we would see our sin, that we would see our resistance to You. And God, help us to see light and hope and help in You. That as men who are, who are broken and who, when it comes to godliness, have been such a disappointment, they would be men who now turn to You in repentance. Would look to You and would cling to You and hope in You to lead us once again or for the first time into a righteousness that brings You glory and is enabled by Your grace. Father, I pray that You call men now. You would convict men now you would begin to sustain men now. For all of us, Father, men and women and children in this time of communion, our desire is to remember You and to remember who You are and to remember what You have done to save us. And as Your sons and daughters, we're overwhelmed with gratitude. We give You all praise this morning. We give You all glory. We give You all honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com. Bah.